Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Good afternoon and welcome to Engage for Success Radio show number 392, building better organizations with better outcomes. Today we're going to be talking about what should be the primary purpose of an organization. I'm Joe Dodds, your host for today. I feel like I haven't been here for weeks, but I guess we've had bank holidays in the middle. Uh, I'm an engagement consultant working within the Engage for Success core team. The Engage for Success movement is an inclusive movement committed to the idea that there is a better way to work by releasing more of the capability and potential of people at work. We spread the word about employee engagement and shine a light on good practice, inspiring people and workplaces to thrive. And we're widely supported across the UK, involving the public, private and third sectors. If you go to our fairly newly designed website, engagesuccess.org, you can use the links at the bottom of the page to join the newsletter list and all our social media links are there too. My guest today is Nigel Gerling, Senior Consultant, Inspirational Development Group and an original Guru Group member and a former Tag Steering Group member. So welcome, Nigel. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Good to be here. And this is the second of a, of a series of three shows with you, isn't it? So uh, you're getting in there quickly to uh, almost be one of the people who've been most often on the show. We'll have to get you back in for a fourth, and then I think you'll equal all the others. <laughs> I'm not sure that because I know what a trilogy is, but I don't know what four makes. <laughs> no, no, good point. That's probably why we've stuck with to the three. Uh, and in conjunction with the show, you've been writing some blogs for the, the website as well. So I'd urge our listeners to go to the website and uh, read those through as well. So just remind people if they weren't listening to the first show as to who you are and what your background is. And then we'll get into the main topic for today. Okay. I mean, for the last God knows how many years I've been a CEO. Um, particularly 11 years as CEO of the National Centre for Strategic Leadership, which is how I got involved right at the outset with with the movement because I was doing some work that involved uh, Anita and then David, and we all met and talked about it. But um, my my kind of thing is leadership uh, as opposed to management, as opposed to business. I believe that the purpose of of a leader is to help people to be better in whatever sense that means. So, so that's what I do. And these articles and these episodes are, are just a kind of a, a symptom of all of that. And you proposed in the, the first show that engagement is not the point and we should be seeking to build better organisations, doing better work with better outcomes to create a better world. I love all that alliteration. <laughs> and um, to do that, we need to transform our leaders. And actually, for this show, we're going to be talking about, well, if we're going to, to do all of that, then the primary purpose of an organisation, whether it's commercial or not, shouldn't actually be, be about making profits or providing returns to shareholders. Tell us a bit more as an introduction to that concept. It's something that's, uh, I've had a bee in my bonnet about it for decades, really, which is that so many organizations seem to think that their purpose is to beef up the P&L, the profit and loss, and get more money. And to me, it's pretty clear that that should be a vicarious byproduct. The mm. organization is created to do something useful because there's a need. You know, so we're, we're, we create an organization in order to fulfill the needs of a, of a market and a customer group. And mm. then... If right we make money but I've, I've seen so many organizations where they've got that the other way around where in fact the, the customers have become a material in the process and actually the purpose of the exercise is to reduce the cost of them and then even more so the employees are right down the bottom 
just above the Christmas raffle or something on the on the kind of hierarchy of, of who's important. And that that to me just seems if we if we have that situation in organisations, we're wasting our time talking about engagement because you can't engage people when they know damn well that no one really cares about them or wants to reduce them as a cost. Mm, mm. Yeah, and, and it's interesting when you think about strategic narrative in an organisation where you're trying to tell a story of where you've been, where you are and where you're going. If it's all about profit, it's a bit of a boring yeah. story. It's quite hard to engage people with that, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and the shareholders and the finance director will be the only people that are actually interested. Um, and that's the problem, isn't it? Because I mean, we, we, we decided that money was important decades ago. And so we created this idea of having chief finance officers or finance directors. And we recognized that they needed to be accountants because they were the ones that knew how that worked. But they were meant to be part of a, a whole senior leadership effort and just mm. one component. But in so many organizations, it's become like a black art. Yeah. You know, that their word carries the most weight because they can tell you whether you're making enough profits, whether you're getting sufficient return on investment, all these kind of things that, that other mm. people often don't quite understand in depth. So they have to believe them. And, uh, yeah. and the... the the customers, the employees, the suppliers, the community, all those other stakeholders that really matter don't matter so much because they don't appear on those sheets. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, so it, it annoys yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. If you, if you look at um, sort of all the, or most of, probably 95% of the non-exec roles that are advertised, they're always looking for finance and governance and, and that sort of stuff. And you can see that some of it is about protection and you need that that sort of guidance for protecting the organization but it always traumatizes me that you don't see them asking for leaders and people people and and sort of innovation or any of that stuff um yeah. which you'd think would be so important yes exactly right yeah um so often i've, I've been a non-exec several times and generally when i'm a non-exec it's because the ceo has recognized they could do with some extra muscle to knock their board into shape um yeah. But, but around the rest of the table, there'll be all those people you mentioned, people who are there to represent the interests of a bank or a, a large-scale investor or, a, or a, a shareholder group or something, and they're there to keep an eye on the money and yeah. to make sure the organization doesn't spend too much of it. So yeah. they're going to doubt pressure on investment in the real sense on the people, on the product, on the service, on the client group, uh, mm. in favor of generating a bigger ROI or whatever. Mm. And that just mm. seems to be so counterproductive because it actually yeah. diminishes reduces the quality of what's being done yeah so why have we ended up in this really financially driven culture because we have had organizations over the years who have really focused on uh, you know either the customer or the employees or both and done so really successfully and you know case studies have been shared and and you know they've been held up as exemplars and yet we still as you say have that financially driven culture why is that I think, I mean, if I really knew the answer to that, I would be out selling it in tins. But I mean, the, my take on the answer is that um, the 80s is a lot to do with it. And uh, that the kind of Thatcher mm -hmm. era of everybody should be out for themselves and grabbing as much money and trousering it as possible. Uh, mm -hmm. The media has a lot to do with it because you know, we, our vision, for a lot of young people, their vision of what business is about is Dragon's Den. Yeah. So, <laughs> ruthless so-and-so who's got lucky. That's, um, that's not my vision of what leadership is about. You know, it's not just about who can make the biggest return or who's going to 
they actually sit there with a wadge of cash on the t- table beside them. What kind of message is that sending out to people? And then you've got mm. the likes of Alan Sugar and the whole apprenticeship thing. It's always focused on the money. And he didn't form Amstrad just as a vehicle for makers of money. That came later. He started mm. out with an idea of a market need and, and to fulfill it. And you know, a lot of our most successful, what you might call entrepreneurial leaders, think about people like James Dyson, uh, Richard Branson, um, Bill Gates, um, Steve Jobs, people like that. They started out with a passion for what they were trying to do. Mm. They became immensely wealthy, but that wasn't what they were trying to do. What they were trying to do was, in James Dyson's case, solve really difficult problems that people hadn't worked out how to solve because he found it fascinating. He's an engineer. You know, Steve Jobs was convinced that, that computers could be better and could be really helpful and creative and sit on people's uh, side tables. And Bill Gates saw, saw that operating systems didn't work very well. And they all ended up making vast amounts of cash, but it was an mm. accidental by, byproduct. They set out to do something useful. Yeah, yeah. And, that, you know, Richard, uh, I briefly worked a bit for Richard's company in the in the 80s, and uh, and Richard's view always was, and still is, that if you get it right for the employees, everything else follows. Because mm. mm. people who are happy and and committed and intrinsically motivated and engaged, then they deliver the best possible ideas, innovations, products, services, support. Whereas if you just treat them as a, as a cost of doing business and try to minimize their cost, you end up with what you deserve, I guess, at that point, which is often people who aren't very good and aren't very committed or engaged in doing the work they do, which brings us back to where we came in as the movement. That's why we were formed, because that was the norm. People yeah. were not engaged is the norm. And, and we've kind of earned that through the way we've led them, employed them, the jobs we've given them, the focus we've had. There's so many organizations, you look at, sorry, I'm off on one now. There's so many organizations, if you look at their, at their website and, and see what they're trying to achieve, it's almost always got numbers on it. Yeah. We're not, we're not trying to achieve numbers, we're trying to achieve things. And numbers are the way you measure some of those things. But you're not gonna, you can't increase profits by doing anything good. You tend to increase profits because you've done better work and therefore you've got more traction or more repeat business or more word of mouth. So, you know, those kinds of things you don't get that because you've trimmed uh, 1% of your cost base. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, find it, uh, I find it, frankly, quite ridiculous that we think that's what business is about. That's mm. what it's become. Mm. Like, well, I mean, I, I speak at conferences a lot and often one of the questions I ask is, what's the point of your business? Almost invariably, I get back stuff about making returns for shareholders or making profits. Whereupon yeah. I go into my, my frantic uh, drug craze monkey act of ranting, raving, and foaming at the mouth at them um, <laughs> to try and help people to, to think about it from a different point of view. So, would your customers say that that was the reason they dealt with you because you made the most profit? I mm. doubt it. In fact, actually, in the UK in particular, we're quite suspicious of very profitable organizations. Mm. We assume mm. that. Taxes, we assume they're screwing us in some way, <laughs> that they're not yeah. doing good stuff. You know, a lot yeah. of organizations are like that, aren't they? You know, especially the younger, as in market life, younger organizations that have started to find different ways of doing it, becoming cooperatives and becoming you know, sort of a different form of organization where everybody has a stake in it. And, yeah. and we've seen that that works, but it doesn't necessarily work for the people at the top who want to make vast amounts of money. No, no. It's interesting. I am um, no. sorry. 
I listened to a really interesting podcast a few years ago about um, some work research that had been done in retail, and retail was my background, so I was particularly interested right. in it. And and she was saying that organisations like um, is it um, Mercado? Mer- oh, I can't remember their name. Yeah, yeah. The Spanish market company that because they focus on customers and employees, um, when they have an issue like a downturn, and I guess probably, although they they probably had a good good, uh, last year uh, for obvious reasons, but, um, you know, when they have issues and when there are problems, they sort of hunker down and they don't provide for the shareholders. They they look after the customers and the people as the most important thing. And, And because of that, they come out of those bad times much quicker and easier than other organizations. Um, in, so in the long run, it's better for the shareholders, but they, they do it completely different to many organizations. Absolutely. And that's the thing about a kind of stakeholder model. You know, most of our organizations, practically all of them, work in a stakeholder model. Some of them don't realize it, you know, where they've got multiple needs to serve and multiple entities mm-hmm. needs to serve. Yeah. You know, they've got regulators, they've got communities, they've got um, suppliers, they've got customers, they've got staff, they've got investors, they've got all these people that they, they need to meet their needs. But what most of them do is organize those in a league table, you know, where, the, yeah. where the stakeholders at the top are the ones about the money, and down at the bottom they've got people like suppliers and, and, and uh, employees who are a necessary evil. <laughs> and people, <laughs> well, they work that out really quickly, don't they? Yeah. You know, when you work for an organization, what its ethos really is very quickly. Yeah. You and I both know that from following um, our former executive director of Kathy's um, Facebook posts. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I was going to mention that earlier, actually, but maybe, maybe we won't now you've said her name. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't do that. But anyway, you see it in so many, uh, so many organizations, you see that they're, they've put people in leadership positions who aren't leaders and then done yeah. nothing to help them become leaders. No, so no, exactly. So they things to be responsible for and, and some outcomes to deliver, and then they kind of thrash them into delivering them, so they then thrash the people out. It's, you know, it's all the way down the line until somebody kicks the ship's cat. You, know, you get this cycle yeah. of abuse that's happening. And lots of organisations are smarter than this, but still too many aren't. Yeah, and also, I mean, going back to, to sort of talking about these organisations who have sort of been the exemplars of focusing on the customer and focusing on the employees and everything else sort of flowing from there, um, what what do you think the the reason why it doesn't happen in the other organisations? I mean, from my perspective, I think often it's lack of ability and confidence in the managers, and so even if they are given that responsibility, they they can't run with it because they're worried for their own jobs and how things are going to pan out for them individually, and they're just not experienced enough. Yeah, I think that's true, and we've seen over this last year a lot of middle managers, in particular desperately trying to justify their existence because mm. their, their primary purpose of, in their job was often overseeing what their people did well mm. how do you do that They're distributed around the country and, and remote you know, that for some of them they responded to that by effectively uh, surveillance <laughs> monitoring what their people were doing yeah. some of them yeah. did it by constant um, interruption of what the people were working on trying to find reasons for them to be there as their manager whereas the best reason mm-hmm. they could possibly have would have been to enable and empower their people to do their best work and support them when they needed things but that yeah. doesn't look like proper work to a lot of people no 
It is. As it, there's a lot of that stuff. I think it, it, you know, fish rots from the head. I think that a lot of this stems from the top team. If the top team have questionable priorities or just oversimplistic priorities, that reflects the way down the organisation. Yeah. If they've got yeah. A, a, that's why we talk about strategic narrative, isn't it? As you mentioned earlier, the whole point of that is that they're, they're part of a story. The people are part of a story. Well, if the story, as you say, is about uh, increasing earnings per share by 1.2%, it's not much of a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a story about doing something really important for the greater good, which it often is, even though they don't talk about it, then yeah. that's like it, isn't it? And why, yeah. why did all those people in the NHS work their backsides off for the whole of the year to protect us all? They didn't, didn't do it for the pay. They did it because it, it mattered to them and they cared. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And yet, I mean, and that's one of the things that we talk about within the movement around sort of engagement in volunteering situations or in charities and so on. And, and the NHS is a good example as well, that often you have people who are engaged with the cause, but they're still not really engaged with the leadership team. Um, yeah. which, you know, <laughs> then it yeah. you know, causes issues as well. Um, yeah. I suspect that's true in that example of the NHS and in hospitals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's also I, true in education, I think, too. Yeah. And, you know, I've said before on here, I think, in my experience, I often come across organisations where there's a big gap between those senior leaders and the next level of leaders down. And, and you know, the people are, are quite good at their, looking after their own team and perhaps managing up um, and definitely managing down and helping their their team but but there's a big gap between what the senior leaders are expecting and want and everything else and what's actually happening yeah. in day-to-day stuff and yeah. often they just you know they really have no idea what's going on at that lower level and people at the lower level are all blaming the senior team for not yeah. doing whatever sort of thing how do you bridge that gap because like yeah. you've already said you said in the last show a lot of people grow up through the ranks and then they sort of jump that divide <laughs> And it doesn't get any better, even though they were there once. Yeah, I think, and and that's there's an inevitability about that in some organisations. I think mean, you're right that there is a huge chasm between the top team and the middle management team often. And part of that, I think, is because their jobs are essentially nothing to do with each other. They're facing <laughs> in opposite directions, and the senior team are often facing uh, outwards to institutional investors, the city, yeah. things like that. They don't have anything operationally to do with anything the organization does. The middle yeah. managers are trying to put fires out and keep things running. And so their focus is generally downwards with an occasional mm-hmm. glance at their shoulder to see if anybody's behind them with a baseball bat. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> I make it sound much worse than it really is, but it is sometimes like that, I have my experience. Yeah. Um, but, but they are essentially disconnected because they have different masters and different um, expectations. Yeah. We've created a situation in the UK where our directors are actually required by law to serve the needs of the shareholders, Mm. not not the customers or the staff or anybody else in the community. So so that's actually how they're judged is by how well they do that. And they can be removed if they don't deliver a big enough return and often are. So Mm. not surprising if that becomes their all-encompassing view of what really matters because that's their life or death. Yeah, the people yeah, yeah. Aren't, aren't affected by that. They're busy trying to run the show. Yeah. So how do we sort of push through that? I mean, we talked before we came um, on air that I, I was talking to somebody recently in another interview who works on her own and said that 
sort of she's been in business I don't know 10 15 years and she's only recently stopped focusing on the money and actually realized what her purpose is and and she said as soon as she started to do that the money came in anyway and so she'd spent so long focusing on the wrong thing and that's what we're saying effectively big organizations are doing how yeah. how can we change that how can it be changed so that they are focusing well, yeah. on <laughs> that's the killer question isn't it i mean and and her experience is i think quite typical for a lot of people who are the, the leaders of their own organization they they can they have a degree of freedom that other people do not have in that they are reporting to no one but themselves and therefore they can make intelligent innovative creative uh, unusual disruptive decisions that the senior leaders of a plc for example or a larger organization don't have the freedom to make no uh, or at least they don't believe they have the freedom to make i think they sometimes do have it uh, mm. so yeah that's true and i think the point about about that about the true purpose is that once you recognize what what you're really there to do everything in the organization starts to align towards that um, yeah in, in, in a small organization in quite direct ways but even in a big way in quite subtle ways if that's the most important thing that will be the thing people tend to focus on mm. and one of the questions mm. i ask a board when i'm first working with them is what's the first item in your agenda in your management meeting or board meeting yeah and almost invariably it's something to do with business performance productivity or money yeah so well don't tell me that people are your biggest asset if that's the first thing you're going to talk about because it's not true is it clearly if that was true they'd be the first item on the agenda and they're not their seventh yeah so, yeah you yeah. think it sounds good when you say it doesn't make it the truth yeah. no, and, no. Well, and if you ask a, a board where they say a thing like you know people are aggressive or we're focused on our people ask them two or three questions about how that manifests itself and and they fall down a hole yeah, they don't know yeah. They don't need it and they don't even know how you would do it. It's just no, a mantra. No. <laughs> well, they probably it's pay 20 steps and they don't the money. Yeah. It's funny, I, I'm having this visual that, that illustrates this in a, a different way, thinking back to my career in retail. And again, I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned this on, on here before, but I worked for um, Safeway as one of my first management um, positions. And then I went to work for Staples, the office superstore. Um, uh -huh. And... Uh, at Safeway, when the senior managers came to visit a store, they walked around in their suits and they were the most important people in the store at that moment, yeah. i.e. more important than the customers. We used to face yeah. up all the shelves and make it look amazing. So for that one moment, they thought the store looked brilliant. And then the rest of the week, the customers had a rubbish experience because we had no staff, no stock, <laughs> and whatever. Staples yeah. um, exactly. walked around with the operate, operations director and a customer was there. It, the customer didn't even need to be asking for help. The operations director would go up to them, say hello, ask them if they could help them in any way. And that yeah. set the tone for the whole organization. Exactly so. That's a very mm. good example. You're right. Um, I, I worked, briefly worked for, uh, for Argos, so I have some <laughs> connection in, yeah. in that world too. Um, yeah. And yes, you, that message is very clearly picked up very quickly by everybody else. Yeah. It tells what yeah. matters. You know, that, the Tesco thing about every little helps makes a difference. I, I give an example um, that I experienced a few years ago now where by chance I happened to shop at um, at Tesco, Sainsbury and Waitrose in successive weeks, just because of circumstance. Mm -hmm. And it yeah. was very interesting. I'm not suggesting this is definitive in any way. It was just the experience I had. But uh, I'm rubbish at shopping, so I always tend to get to the checkout and realize I've forgotten something. It happens almost every yeah. time. 
even if I've got a list. That actually especially when I've got a list. Um, so I arrived at the checkout and I said to the person on the checkout that Tesco's, oh, I've forgotten the so-and-so and so-and-so. Can you tell me where it is? And, and she gave me the aisle number and left me to yeah. get it. Yeah. Uh, when it was Sainsbury's, uh, the person said, oh, it's in such and such an aisle. I'll, I'll take you there. And they walked me to the place. Mm-hmm. In wait, so it's fine. You, you wait there, I'll go and get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a subtle difference, but, the, but you know, the message that, that sends out is huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And everybody knows that. And that. All those people who work there know that that's what they've got to do because that's the way the business operates. Yeah? So yeah. It, you're right, those, those things like your operations director, those send out very strong signals to people about what's most important. But we get it wrong yeah. in so many walks of life. Um, I've, yeah. I've spent years in education and uh, any college or school will tell you that the moment they get told they've got an offset inspection, the pupils, parents and local employers can take a hike. Yeah. They'll focus on yeah. getting things right because it's life or death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the customers have their worst experience. Yeah, and it's such, an irony, isn't it? it's such an irony that they're coming to make sure the standards are good enough for whether it be people's customers, whatever, and all they do is cause the opposite problem. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Billy Connolly had a perfect um, phrase for this many years ago. He said that the Queen thinks the whole world smells of paint. <laughs> um, that absolutely nails that, that attitude so well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so true, so true. So one of the um, sort of points that um, that we raised on this was about... Um, but there being a differential between executive pay and um, average pay or, or everyone else's pay. And it's something that crops up in the media, you know, on a regular basis. And particularly at the moment, you know, we've had these issues um, with, you know, furlough and, and companies not doing very well. And then there's still people getting bonuses and, you know, large pay um, rises. And that's, how does that, what's all that about? Yeah, exactly. So well, there's a, we have a, a kind of a, an invisible class system in our organizations. So there's a particular theme of people who tend to make it to board level in PLCs mm. from similar kinds of backgrounds with similar types of degree, with similar types of attitude, often with financial skills and data skills and marketing skills. Um, and they kind of dictate the rules of all of that. And you'll often hear people say, um, well, we, we need to pay that kind of money to attract the, the biggest talent. And yet there's lots of data that shows that the that board-level people have very little impact on the success of an organization in the longer term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the products, mm-hmm. the service, the people that do the actual work, the ones who interface with the customer, they have the biggest impact. But, but yeah. Yeah, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, is one of my favorite sayings. And so why mm-hmm. would they want to change it? It, it serves them very well. Yeah. Um, so unless somebody is smart enough to go, well, hang on a minute, it would be much better if we did this. It's the same problem we have with things like climate change, with Me Too, with um, inclusion, with all these kinds of issues that until those people see it as a way of making more money for their shareholders than themselves, it's very unlikely mm. to make the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Nigel, um, not surprisingly, the time has whizzed by. We literally have two and a half minutes till the end of the show. Um, so any final top tips or, or final comments yeah. that, that you leave us with? Because we've got another show in a few weeks, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, for me, the, the big issue that we have in the UK that some other countries don't have is that we, we call leadership and management a profession, but we don't treat it as one. There is mm-hmm. no expectation or requirement for people to be taught how to do it or qualified in doing it. 
they'll often say, oh, yes, but I've, I've got a degree in chemistry. Oh, great, go and do some chemisting then. That's not your <laughs> job. And they'll say, oh, no, I'm, an account- I'm a chartered accountant. Are you? Well, excellent. Well, count some things. Your job now is to be a leader. Be qualified at that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've, the analogy after you is if you got to the top of the steps as you were going onto a jet, and the person who told the pilot was greeting and they said, by the way, I'm not actually a pilot, but I am a dentist. How many seconds would it take you to get back down the stairs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yet we yeah. think that's a perfectly acceptable answer for people in senior leadership positions. They've got to be able mm-hmm. to do the job. And you, it's, you can't rely on talent and, and aptitude. It's helpful. Mm-hmm. It's not enough. People need to mm-hmm. learn how to do it. More time yeah. on my own CPD after several PhDs and professional doctorates. I spend more time on my own CPD now than I did 25 years ago. Because there's right. so much more to learn. There's so many more things going on. It's so much more yeah. complex. Yeah. And just relying on our own emulating those, as we've said throughout the show today, is not the way forward because it doesn't always work. Right. <laughs> no, you can't bust your way through this. It's very complicated and very difficult. You've got to learn the skills. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you so much, Nigel. I'm really pleased that I'll be speaking to you again in a few weeks' time when you're back on the show again. So thank you. Pleasure. So just to let you know, next week, Joe Moffat's back and she's talking with Pam Schmidt, who's Graze's People Director, and they're talking about the blend of data and imagination that is unique to Graze. So Joe will be back with you next week. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.